0: The book of Philippians chapter 3. Now, here's the plan this year. We're going, to have, we're going to memorize a passage of Scripture every single month, 12 key passages of Scripture this year as part of the plan, and we're going to say those in the services like you've already done during the month of January. It was Joshua 1-8, and uh, we've got that one down, but we'll come back and periodically review them as well. And then, this Sunday, we introduced, for the month of February, keeping life in focus. And the passage that describes keeping our lives in focus is Philippians 3, and I want you to turn there in your Bible with me, where we quoted the Scripture, but now we're going to read the passage I'll preach to you on the verse every time we introduce it, each time we introduce it at the beginning of the month. And that'll give you the background, that'll give you insight and understanding into what you'll be memorizing. I read in a book this week something, and, and uh, my wife tried it, and she said it worked. It said you can memorize Scripture if you will, just when you get up in the morning while your mind is fresh, quote the verse five times. Now, you have to focus on it. You have to give it thought. You focus on it and read the verse five times. Just read it with concentration. Then at night, right before you go to bed, read it five more times with concentration, real slowly, thoughtfully, just absorbing it right in. Five times in the morning, five times before you go to bed, the last thing on your mind. And uh, if you'll do that, they say that you'll know that passage of Scripture in just, you know, a week or 10 days. So somebody might want to try. It's just a little gimmick to try, but... Possibly it works. I don't know. I haven't tried it yet. I probably will. Now, Philippians chapter 3, and I'm going to ask you to stand one more time because of our love and reference for God's Word. Chapter 3, Philippians, and will you follow with me as I read verses 7 through 14? But what things were gained to me, says the Apostle Paul, those I counted a loss for Christ, yea, doubtless. And that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable unto his death. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Jesus Christ. Now everyone together, our verses. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth into those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Thank you. You may be seated. The book of Philippians was written from a Roman jail cell. Paul is an old man now, probably in his 60s, and he's been serving the Lord for a long time, and boy, he's been through a lot of real problems in his life. He is overwhelmed with problems as he sits in that jail. In fact, within four years of the time that this was written, we know that he was beheaded for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, he has lots of problems in his life, lots of adverse circumstances. Isn't it interesting that the book of Philippians is called the epistle of joy? In all of the problems of his circumstances, he is full of joy. The word joy or rejoice is used over and over and over in this book. He had lost his freedom, in other words, but he had not lost his focus. The circumstances of his life had not defeated him. This man is still on the path where he began 30 years ago or more when he had first come into the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, look in verse number 10. He tells us his goal, and I want you to get it. It's very important in understanding this. What is Paul's goal? Number one, that I may know him. He wanted to know the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want you to remember something about that phrase. That's an important passage of Scripture, verse 10. He didn't say, I want to know about Jesus Christ. He said, I want to know Jesus Christ. There's a big difference, isn't there? You know, I'm afraid that in our churches today, we have a lot of people who know about Jesus Christ. They've got a head knowledge. They've got a lot of factual information that they've learned. They've attended Sunday school and Bible study, and they've attended worship services. And if they come to a church like this, we're saturated in the Bible. Boy, they know about Jesus Christ, but that's not what he said. I want to know Jesus Christ. I know a lot about President Obama. I read the news, I listen to the news, but I don't know President Obama. I never met him. I have spent zero time with him. In the same way, many know about Jesus Christ. Paul, that was not his goal. I want to know Jesus Christ. My question to you this morning is, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know him intimately? Do you know him Personally, or do you just have some facts up there about him? He said, I want to know Christ. Second thing he said, he said, I want to experience the power of his resurrection. The greatest power in all of the universe is the power of God, the power that was so great that it conquered death. That Jesus Christ lay in that cold tomb for three days and three nights, and then he came forth with eternal and everlasting life, life that cannot be explained in any kind of human dimension. To know the power of his resurrection was the second thing Paul uh, wanted here as a goal. And then thirdly, he said, the fellowship of his sufferings, the fellowship of his sufferings. You know, when we are the companion... When we are in a relationship and spend time with a person who is going through deep suffering, there is a bond, there is a companionship, a relationship that's forged. When you sit at the bedside of a suffering loved one or someone who is going through deep trial emotionally, a companion of a sufferer forges a deep bond there emotionally. And Paul said, Jesus Christ suffered for me. And you know, I want to be his companion. I want to understand that. I want to, underst- I want to have a fellowship that's based upon his suffering for me, a noble, noble aspiration. And then if you look also, the last thing is he said, and I want to know, I want to be made conformable unto his death conformable. I want to be like him. I want to reflect his character. I want to reflect his glory. I want people to know that I have been with him and that I am like him. I could think of no four goals that would be better in describing what the Christian life is about, that I would know the Lord on a personal experiential basis that I would experience his power in my life, that I would know him through truly understanding the sufferings that he he did for me on Calvary, and lastly, most of all, that I would become like him in my character. This is the goal of the Apostle Paul. This is a man with great humility. As you memorize this verse this month, I want you to remember the introduction, the background I'm giving you to him. He's a man of great humility. Look in verse number 13 with me. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. Apprehended, we would probably say, I don't think I've arrived yet. I haven't reached all my goals yet. I'm not the epitome of success. I haven't arrived. I am on this journey. I am making progress, but I'm not there yet. And we see a little expression of humility here. By him Boy Humility really stands out In a man like Paul Because this is a man Of the greatest accomplishment The greatest accomplishment Do you remember In Acts chapter 9 When he got saved The Lord Jesus Christ Came to him personally He met the Lord Jesus Christ That day Who else could say I met Jesus Christ Personally Personally And and he, he came and appeared to me And then, not only had he met the Lord, but if you will remember, Paul wrote 13 books of the New Testament, 13 of them. There's only 26 books in the New Testament. He wrote half the New Testament. What an honor God had given to him. Is he puffed up about it? Not one bit. He had gone all over the Roman Empire, and he had founded churches. And so he could go to Ephesus, he could go to Philippi, he could go to Corinth. And they would say, boy, Paul was our founding pastor here. And then, I guess most of all, this man here had preached before the kings. He had stood, in fact, we know that he had gotten close to even Caesar's household in Rome. Paul was a man of great accomplishment, but yet he was not puffed up. One of the things I most admire in a person as I've gone through the years is somebody who's humble. Boy, I heard a fellow say that preachers are like wasps. They're bigger when they're born than any other time. And I thought, I don't want to be like that. No way. I hope that the Lord will teach me humility in my life. Don't you get tired of being around a fellow who is pompous and the whole world revolves around his little pinhead? It's wonderful when you meet somebody. They might have something to really be proud about, but they're not. They're humble. This was Paul. He was born in 1725 in England. His father abused him as a little boy, beat him cruelly. His father was a sea captain and was gone most of the time. And when he came home, he would be drunken. And the boy followed in his footsteps and went to sea when he was almost a child. He, too, became ultimately the captain of a slave ship. He was a drunkard himself. He took on his father's habits. Until one day, he was so cruel and mean that the men on his own ship gave him physically, bodily, just handed him over violently to another man who was a slave, a slaver in Africa. He was an African, a black man who collected the slaves and sold them to the slave trade. This man gave the man I'm talking about to his wife. They put a collar around him and put a chain on him and subdued him. And for months, he was the slave of slaves, the slave of slaves. One day, his daddy paid somebody to rescue him. They put him on a ship, brought him back to England, and ultimately he got saved. He met Jesus Christ, and the rest of the story is well-known in history. He went on to school at one of the universities there. He studied. He became a very famous pastor. It was through his ministry that William Wilberforce, who ultimately ended slavery, became a Christian. But you know him best because he wrote the words of the song we sung, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, and I was blind, but now I see. His name was John Newton, and here's what he said. Here's a man who was the best-known pastor in all of England, and all of that glorious story that he had, but listen to his humility. I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be, but still, I am not a, what I once used to be, and by the grace of God, I am what I am. There's a man who could give all the glory to God because he knew that it was all of grace. He was a humble man. Well, that's a little side note. I want you to know three. I want you to notice with me three attitudes that Paul had here that are in this passage that we're going to be memorizing. And I want you to remember what I'm talking to you about it so you'll deeply uh, absorb it into your mind. Uh, Three attitudes that will keep your life in focus. Number one, his past had been forgotten. Number two, his focus was on the future. And number three, he never lost his passion. If you'll do that, I promise you your life can be a rich life. Number one, his past had been forgotten. And where do I get that? Verse number 13. Look with me again. This one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind. Forgetting those things which are behind. I'll tell you, Paul had a past. He had a a big past, a bad past. He had a lot to forget. Perhaps like some people I'm talking to here right now, you've had a past you've got a lot in the back of your mind there, a lot to forget. Well, that's Paul. I mean, after all, he assisted in the death, the martyrdom of Stephen. He had hated and persecuted the Christians. Nobody ever hated more than Paul hated at a point in his life. In fact, keep your finger there. Turn over to the right with me, just two or three or four books in your Bible here, and let's go to the book of 1 Timothy, and I want you to Listen, in his own words, his description of his past. 1 Timothy chapter number 1, 1 Timothy 1 and verse number 12. He said, and I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. He's grateful that he could even serve God. Who was before? Now, he's going to tell you about his past. He said, I was a blasphemer. He hated the name of Jesus Christ at one time. A persecutor. Remember when he was saved, he had documents, legal documents in his pockets to persecute Christians up there in Damascus. He said, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor. I was injurious. I was violent toward the Christian people. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant." with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. And then I love this verse right here. This is a faithful saying, and worthy of everyone's acceptation, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. He had a past. I was the chief of sinners, the apostle Paul said. And so I have a lot of things on my plate that I need to forget. He had been outwardly moral, but boy, he literally seethed with hatred on the inside. He had blood on his hands from those Christians that he had persecuted. He had blasphemed the name of Jesus Christ. But his past was forgotten, forgetting those things which are behind. His past was forgotten. Listen to me it was forgotten because it was forgiven it was forgotten because it was forgiven people will come in sometimes and talk to me and pastor i'm just having a hard time do you really think god can forgive and they'll name some sin or some habit in which they were involved sometimes i lay down on my pillow at night and those memories flood back of those old days am i really forgiven Often people will say something like this. If you can't forget it, then it's probably not forgiven. And they'll talk to me and it's obvious they don't understand forgiveness. Do you understand the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ today? Even as a Christian, you've accepted his forgiveness, but those old sins in the past come back and haunt you. And sometimes guilt enslaves you and shackles you. And sometimes you're defeated and depressed and morbid and and your conscience is heavy because of things that occurred in your past life, if you understand forgiveness, you'll you'll, you'll be able to deal with that. Uh, There's a verse in Psalms 103 and verse 12 that I love. And the verse goes like this. As far as the east is from the west so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. As far as the east is from the west. Someone pointed out the east and the west never meet. You can go east perpetually. You you could spend the rest of your life on a ship or an airplane going west, and never would you come to the east. They never come together, as the old poem said. You can go north, and at the pole, you'll begin to go south. And then you'll reverse again if you continue. But the east and the west are so far removed, and that's what the Scripture here says. God has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west, never to be remembered again. And then over there in the book of Micah, chapter 7 and verse 19, it says, He will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. He puts our sins in the depths of the sea I read that there is a trough out there in the Pacific Where the ocean is seven miles deep 35,000 foot of water And the Bible says that's where he puts our sins In the depths of the sea Some old country boy said He not only buries our sins in the depths of the sea He puts a no fishing sign over it (laughs) Boy I like that don't you? Uh, No fishing sign. And I know some Christians, unfortunately, they get their little boat and go up there to the deep water and drop in their line and fish that stuff back up. And I tell you, it's forgiven. It's forgiven because Jesus Christ died on the cross, and he shed his precious blood. And the book of 1 John says, and the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, does what? Cleanseth us from all sin, cleanses us from all sin. Isn't that good to know today? All sin, A-double-L-all, the worst, most blasphemous thing that you've ever done, the most evil, the most injurious to other people. But Jesus Christ hung there and suffered and poured out his blood that you could be cleansed from your sins. This week, a pastor drove Oh, a couple, 300 miles to see me. And came and we sat and talked. He's a young man. He's taken a large church and he's dealing with all the issues that you might think. And he said, do you know what one of our ministries is right now that's effective? And I said, what is it? He said, we have a ministry to prostitutes. I said, what? That's right. He said, you won't believe how many young women in the human trafficking business have been taken away violently. And in this big city where I'm ministering, across the street and across the way, several, uh, uh, I guess a mile or two from them, they've made it a center of prostitution. There was even a, a, a program on television about it. And he said, we bought, our church bought a safe house where these women, they live in such fear that we could win them to Christ and then we could spirit them out of there and they could go live anonymously and they could rebuild their lives. And he said, you know what? Of all the things we're doing at our church, that is the most encouraging to me. I'm seeing the Lord Jesus Christ cleanse those prostitutes and make new women out of them, Pastor. It's wonderful what God can do in their lives. Well, that's a great illustration of what I'm talking about. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses and it takes away our sins. You know, so many of us could be so much better for the Lord today if we could get past our past. If we could get past our past, then we could be effective for our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Paul got past his past. He knew that the key to forgiveness in life is to repent of sin and receive the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. His merits, his benefits, what he accomplished for us when he shed his blood on the cross. His past had been forgiven. Number two, notice with me, his focus though was on the future. Look at verse 13 again in your Bible. First, or in Philippians rather, chapter 3, verse number 13. Forgetting those things which are behind, the past, and reaching forth, that's the future. Under those things which are before, things which are before, that's the future again. Twice he mentions it. His focus was on the future. Future. But he's using a, a, a sort of a, an, an athletic metaphor here. So I picture in my mind a, a track meet. I picture in my mind the Olympic games are a great, great Event like the Olympics With track and field Now we have the sprinter It's the 100 yard dash maybe Here's the sprinter They line up Only 9 seconds and a half or so in this race That sprinter That gun goes off And they go down that track From the very second giving it Every single bit of energy And strength that they have And in that final Moment Microsecond. Right there is the the line. That sprinter sometimes, they hurl their body through the air, completely abandon all thought of comfort or self, just throw themselves at that, reaching forth. That's the idea. that, that, That sprinter throws himself at that tape, at that goal, with total abandonment. And Paul says, that's what I'm doing in the cause of Christ. I'm reaching forward, and I'm giving it everything that I've got. David Livingston, the medical doctor who went to Africa and traversed the whole continent twice, wrote the earliest maps, made, the, made the earliest maps for the country, explorer, physician, missionary preacher, they asked Livingston one time if he was willing to go to a certain place. I love the spirit of David Livingston. I am prepared to go anywhere as long as it is forward. I like that, don't you? I'm prepared to go anywhere as long as it's forward. What a great word for us here early in this new year. Future, reaching forth. But look at something else I want you to notice in that Verse. Reaching forth unto those things which are are, 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 are far uh, ahead of us. But go back in the verse, verse 13. This one thing I do. So he focused one thing, focus, focus. Focus where? On the future. Focusing on the future. That's the teaching of the verse. This one thing I do, not these 40 things I dabble in. If we're not careful, we become dabblers in a whole bunch of things and we lose our focus. One thing, not ten. One thing, not five. One thing, not two. One. One thing the Apostle Paul says. He had reduced all of his concerns to one concern. He had reduced all of life here to this one big thing. He understood priority, if you will. Now, I don't mean when I say that he reduced everything to one thing, that that's all he did, that every day, all day long, all he did was was pursue the the goal of, of following Christ. I mean that he had been captured in his heart and his mind and his emotions by one purpose in his life. And that purpose drove every other purpose of his life. Paul had to get up in the morning. He had to take a bath. He had to eat. He had to go through the, the normal activities of life that we all go through. He would have had to work had he not been in jail. I don't mean that he just did one activity in his life, but I mean that all day long in his mind and in his heart, there was one purpose. There was one focus. There's one thing he kept coming back to over and over and over One priority. This verse that we're memorizing this year or this month, oh, how I hope you'll get the truth of that verse. This one thing I do, forgetting the past and focusing upon the future, a recipe for spiritual success as well as success in a whole lot of other ways. Goethe was a great German poet and philosopher. He said one of the most profound things along this line. Goethe said, the things that matter most should never be at the mercy of the things that matter least. The things that matter most, what are the things that matter most for a Christian? Our eternal life, our soul, eternity, pleasing the Lord. The things that matter most should never be at the mercy of the things that matter least that are passing away. Last week I gave you an illustration. I said, look around this room. There's not anything you can see that's permanent. Everything here is temporary, it'll we'll all be gone in a matter of years. A hundred years from now, nothing will be here that you're looking at. Nor will you be. And Goethe said, with that in mind, the things that really matter, the eternal things, the things of God, the things of the soul, the things of character. The things that would please our Lord, those things should never be at the mercy of all the stuff that's passing away. I have two or three goals I've been talking to you about. Every class, a growing class in Sunday school this year. And every member, a growing member. The focus upon our own spiritual growth. And I mean by that, that we grow not to know more about Christ, but that we grow in Christ-likeness. That we become, as Paul said here, that I may know him. That I may have fellowshiped with him. And that his cause is my cause, and his concerns are my concerns. It won't be long, Christian, till we will all stand at the judgment seat of Christ. I don't try to drive people to serve God from guilt or negativity. But there are some facts that are realities. I will stand, every one of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and will give account for those things that we did in our bodies, in our earthly life. And I will stand there before the Creator, Almighty God, who made me and made the universe. And I will stand there before the Lord Jesus Christ Who hung on the cross and poured out his lifeblood so that I could be with him in heaven? The judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ is not a place where people go to find out if they're going to heaven. It'll be in heaven, we'll already be there. The judgment seat of Christ is not a judgment where anybody's punished. It's a judgment of reward. It's where we go and stand before the Lord and he rewards us for the things done in life. And we forget it. When a preacher mentions judgment, all the off switches are flipped. And people say, I don't want to hear about judgment. Were you going to be at a judgment? If you're lost, you're going to be at the white throne judgment where you will be judged for... Rejecting Jesus Christ. If you're a believer, you're going to be at the judgment seat of Christ, a judgment for rewards. Your life work will be evaluated. Your motives. What you did. Why you did it. How you did it. And then the rewards will be given out to us. And you know what I think at the judgment seat of Christ? There's a verse over in Revelation that says that all the tears were wiped away, which means there were tears in heaven. I'm sorry, somebody sung a song about no tears in heaven, but there will be tears in heaven. They'll be wiped away. Why will there be tears in heaven is the issue. I'll tell you why, there'll be tears of regret. Tears of regret. I'll look back on my life and I'll say, you know what? I lived too much for the short view for the temporary, for the temporal, for right now, the things of life, rather than living for the things of eternity. You've probably studied in school a poem by John Greenleaf Whittier. It was called Maud Miller. Maud Miller. and you can quote a phrase from Maud Miller whether you've ever heard of Maud Miller or not. There was a judge one day, back in the old days, riding his horse. He rode out to a farm, and as he passed through the hayfield, it was hot. He was just thirsty, and there was a beautiful spring there beside the hayfield. And there was a young girl standing there by the the hayfield. And she had been working. She had on a real crude, homemade dress. But she had sweated into the dress. But he looked at her, and she was the most beautiful girl that this young judge, just in his 20s, had ever seen. Oh, she was gorgeous. And he asked her, would you allow me to get a drink out of your spring? And she said, well, I'll get you the drink myself. And so she got him a drink. Handed him the cool water as he stopped under the shade of the tree by the hay field where she'd been working. And he found out that as he talked to her for a few moments, she was the nicest, kindest girl he had ever met in all his life. His admiration for her was just growing. I mean, he fell for her in just about five minutes' time. And he couldn't, he said, that's the most beautiful woman. And the nicest woman, she's beautiful inside, she's beautiful outside. What is your name? Maud Miller. Well, he said goodbye to her. He thought he'd stayed long enough and she'd get the wrong idea. So he left on his horse. He went into town. He got busy practicing the law and serving as a judge. He had pressure on him from his family and from society in the little town to marry a certain girl. She was sort of a blue-blood society gal. And he ended up marrying her. But every night, he would sit by his fireplace, and he'd look into the embers. And who'd he think about? Maud Miller. And Maud Miller got married. She had six kids and worked on a farm, was poor all of her life. And she would gaze into the fire, and she would wish, somehow, I wish I could have gotten to know, I think he was the one in my life. And both of them spent their life regretting that they didn't further that relationship. And then John Greenleaf Whittier sums so much about life up here. Of all sad words, of tongue or pen, the saddest are these, what it might have been. And ladies and gentlemen, we'll stand at the judgment seat of Christ. Of all the sad words, I could have lived for him. I could have known him. I could have experienced his power. I could have spent my life to be conformable to his image, but I didn't. The things that matter least pull me away from the things that matter most. What could have been. And my last point, verse 14, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I press, press, press press. You get that word? To press on something, it it means to exert a powerful effort, but it also means the thing resists. So a powerful effort to try to push against something or do something with an object that resists you. So my wife hands me this jar full of pickles. And she says, Bill, I can't get the top off of this thing. And I said, "Hand it to me, no problem here." And so I take it, and this will be a piece of cake. But it isn't a piece of cake. It's a jar full of pickles. And so I squeeze, and I work, and finally I go over and put it under the hot water spigot, and I, and I take that little rubber thing she's got. Then I find out the problem. I looked at the label. That jar was put together by a jolly green giant. (laughs) That's pressing. See, you're red in the face. Pressing. Football practice. I walked out there this summer. It was an August day. Man, it was hot. And they said, okay, boys, hit the sled. Four or five young men stand up there. They've been lifting weights. They're strong. Vital They get down there, and the, Mark blew the whistle, and they all hit the sled. You know what the sled is if you've ever been around football. And I mean, you could just hear them. Ah, ah, oh, oh, oh. It, it just sounded terrible. It sounded like somebody's killing them. And they're pushing so hard the dirt's flying up from the cleats behind. They're spinning. Pressing, pressing. That's the word, press. Great effort, powerful effort, but great resistance as well. I pressed toward the mark. Mark that in your Bible. That's the word scopos, from which we get our word telescope. But the scopus in the Bible was a square pillar that when the runners came into the Olympic stadium, it was a square column straight across the arena, and at the foot of the scopus was the prizes that the winner would be awarded. They would get down, and when they got down, have you ever noticed these people at a track meet? They don't look at each other. They don't look at the crowd. They keep their eye on the mark. I press toward the mark so that I might be there to win the prize. And what is the prize? Look what Paul says is the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I believe there are three calls of God for every Christian, one, there's the, or for every person, there's the call of God to salvation. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest for your soul. The call to salvation. Secondly, there's the call to sanctification, that we live righteously and godly and holy lives. And thirdly, there's the call of service, that I serve the Lord with my time and my talents, my abilities. The 1968 Olympics, Mexico City Great, famous story came out of that The award ceremony had just completed And suddenly outside the stadium there was a commotion Sirens, sirens started to be heard on police vehicles, emergency vehicles and so on It came over the PA system Ladies and gentlemen, please be seated Most of the crowd had already left, or many of them had. And so the people sat, and then someone looked over the edge of the stadium, the flashing lights, and the police cruisers had surrounded one lone figure. And here was a man. And he was limping. He was walking like this. He was staggering. And as he came into the door of the stadium, the crowd arose to get a glimpse of him because he had on one of the uniforms. He was a competitor. His name was John Stephen Aquarty. He was the representative of Tanzania. He had fallen early in the race and he had received a pretty serious head injury and so he was covered with blood all over. In the fall, he not only had a head injury, he dislocated his shoulder and he'd injured his knee. And so he's literally dragging that leg Covered with blood Arm dangling at his side From the dislocated shoulder And he's moving like this And he comes in and he gets to the finish line And he literally falls Into the floor of the arena And the emergency people come And they attend him of course Take him to the hospital Severely dehydrated Loss of blood But he wouldn't let them help him He kept on dragging that leg. The winner had crossed the finish line hours ago. And he said he wouldn't let the the, the emergency people help him. He continued until he got to the finish line and he fell in a heap. One of the most memorable moments of Olympic history. So the press interviewed him then after he was released from the hospital. Why did you keep on going like you did? And his answer was, my country didn't send me to start the race. They sent me to finish the race. They didn't send me to start. They sent me to finish. And ladies and gentlemen, that's what Paul's saying to you and me today. And here we are in the 21st century. All the Christian heritage has been passed down to us. We live in a crisis time that we're all the Lord has. The Christian generation who lives today, we're all that He has. Whatever we are, we are by grace. Keep in mind three things and you'll never fail. Number one, your past is forgotten if it's under the blood of Christ. Number two, Your focus must be ever on the future. And number three, don't lose your passion till you cross the finish line. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.